Hard BN. Back at Little Beaver Brewery. Feels good to be out again. Zoom works okay, but man, it is uh, it's just not the same as being in with person. So I got David Parker here with me today. Hey, David, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? So it's first time out here at Little Beaver, you said, huh? First time out at Little Beaver and first time as a guest on a podcast, so I'm excited. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, what are you drinking over there? Uh, I got Dad Jokes, which I think is a great name for a beer, and the beer's good, so good. Yeah, it's a win. Yeah, they got all kinds of good names. Yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with the Space Crystals, but I noticed down there there's a watermelon seltzer. I tried that, and it's, it's pretty good. Uh, I think in the summer I might grab one of those. It's a little bit cold for a seltzer right now. I need something a little heartier. But, uh, I was yeah. listening to some of the uh, the older pod being, and I saw Kelby Cumston was making a petition for Jitters to come back. So when I, oh, saw, yeah. I saw it on the menu, I'm like, oh, Here he, must have, he must have succeeded. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I take full credit for that, uh, the power of pod being and uh, Kelby. So next thing we're going to work on is... Uh, is that electric go kart thing over at the mall? So okay. That's our next. That's our next hurdle. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. Figure it's like jitters and then the, uh, the, the go karts. Ele- electric go karts at the mall, sponsored by Rivian, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. Lil Beaver. Yeah, and, Just, Lil, and Lil Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Um, just real quick before we start, just to the listeners, we had uh, people from Eatology on last time, and I ended up trying their stuff. If you haven't tried it yet, it is really good. It's, uh, local food prepared, dr- delivered right to you. I was very happy. Um, strangely enough, David, the the thing that I really liked about this was the broccoli. Like, I'm not really like, I mean, how excited can you get about broccoli? But they had these like, it's like local fresh broccoli. So it was just like a hard boiled egg, some uh, some bean sprouts, and some things of broccoli. And I, you know, it's just like d- delicious. I don't know what it was, but um, I guess I'm just used to like frozen store bo- store bought broccoli. See, so uh, makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, now I'm now I'm intrigued to try it because I'm not a broccoli guy. That was one thing that George Bush Senior and I had in common was a, a disdain for broccoli. But if if, if it's excited <laughs> enough for you to bring it up, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I tell you, um, yeah, give it a shot. Eatology.com, I think, is their site. Um, you can just order a few things. They they make them. They deliver them to your house for a reasonable price. So uh, I was happy to happy to check them out. All right, cool. sounds good. So I wanted to talk to you because you've got an interesting project going on that I think illustrates some of the the challenges that confront someone trying to develop something that's not on the well-worn path that we have of, of development here in town. So just uh, tell people what you're working on. Right. Well, there's uh, basically two parts to this. I guess first I'll give a little bit of the backstory about the Illinois Terminal Railroad Company and the car itself just briefly, and then we'll get into the project itself. Sure. So... In 1895 or 96, um, I think it was 95, the Illinois Traction System Company started, and it was an electric interurban rail line, ran from St. Louis to Mackinac, so central Illinois. Okay. And... I didn't know that. Electric. Electric. It was electric. All right. All right. uh, Which is interesting, because with Rivian now producing electric vehicles here in Bloomington Normal, it's cool to bring a 111-year-old electric vehicle back to the city. Okay. Okay. and some of the people that have been helping me with the project are engineers that work at Rivian and, and stuff. But um, they also, interurbans don't usually have sleeper cars. In fact, there was only ever three interurban, because interurban, they, they, they run in between cities, but they also run through the city. So there's pictures of these train cars, almost like a trolley type thing, where they're driving down the streets in downtown Bloomington. Okay. Um, so I knew it, there was trolleys that like would ferry people 
like within town, but right. they even went outside of town too on these tracks. Okay. Right, but yeah, was these tracks would you know they would come up from St. Louis, but they would actually cut through the city and not just go past the city. Huh. And that's what makes it really interesting just to look at the old photos and see these cars driving past buildings that still exist in downtown Bloomington. Yeah. Of course, those tracks have long been paved over, but. Um, there was only ever three interurbans that offered sleeper car service, one in Indiana, one out west, and then the Illinois uh, Traction Systems, which later in the 1920s and 30s became the Illinois Terminal Railroad Company, changed, changed the name and the paint scheme. Um, at the time, they were the only one. I have a, an ad from 1915 from the Pantograph newspaper that says, you know, come out this Tuesday and take a walk through our sleeper cars. We're the only interurban in the world that has sleeper car service. Okay. So that was kind of cool. And so... So then how did this... Uh, so we had these things, and then when did that get, like, decommissioned? Yeah, 1952 was the last service out of Bloomington. Okay. You had um, automobiles that become a lot more affordable than they were in 1895. Yeah. Uh, you had bus lines, and the interstate system was starting to go in under Eisenhower, and... So yeah. 50- we we just decided to put all of our uh, put all our chips on cars at that point, right? Basically, yeah, yeah. Okay, yep, cool. So uh, the Illinois Terminal Railroad Company continued to operate cargo and you know, freight up into the '80s, but the '50s was when the, the passenger service ended. Uh huh. Um, and so one of my friends had shared a post online of someone who had an Illinois Terminal. Originally Illinois Traction, but we'll say Illinois Terminal going forward. Illinois Terminal Railroad Company sleeper car built in 1911 that was rotting away in their yard, and it was free to anyone who wanted it. Okay. And I thought it was fascinating because they they only had 10 sleeper cars, and only two of them are left. Okay. And this is one of them. One of them is preserved in unrestored but working order at, at a railway museum, hmm. and the other one had been sitting outside untouched for decades some guy's backyard was in well it was actually the Harristown train depot which Harristown is basically a suburb of Decatur so this car had been sitting out in front of the depot which was operating as an antique store for many decades and the guy that had moved it there was passionate about it but when he passed away his widow my understanding didn't have the I guess the interest or the resources to really take care of it and once the roof gave way the rest of the car started going quickly okay and on this post this couple had bought the Harristown Depot which was also in a state of disrepair and they spent a lot of time and money and energy restoring it it's beautiful but they didn't have the time money or energy to also restore the car sitting in front of the depot so they get a lot of credit for what they did with the depot they saved that depot from being demolished but the car was free to anyone that wanted it and if no one wanted it it would be scrapped okay so that was a a limited timeline yeah well so i contacted the guy and i said we have to save this car so let me know you know and he said well there's nine people ahead of you that are interested in it like okay so i'm not getting the car fine (laughs) it's a big project i'm somebody's yeah i'll I'll, I'll donate to whoever's then he calls says well you're up and because it's such a big project and it's definitely not for the faint of heart the nine people have passed it up so I started looking into what it would take to get it moved 50 miles from Harristown to Bloomington. And at some point, I called him back and said, well, if there's anyone behind me in line that's in a better position to move this than I am, they can have it. And But at the end of the day, it came down to I was the one. It okay. was 
I was going to move it or it was going to be scrapped. Right. And it was so there's a limited timeline. He had originally told me you have three weeks to get it moved, and it took me over four months. But <laughs> how did you? So tell me how you moved it then. <laughs> well, there was a lot of uh, complications with moving it. It was in between the, the depots. He had the depot on one side, and it was hard to back equipment there. But on the other side was the train tracks and several feet extending out from the train tracks is under the control of the railroad. Okay. And then you had power lines running directly over the top of the car. <laughs> so you couldn't use a crane because you had these power lines. Uh-huh. And then there was also some bushes in front of it. And as much as I tried to convince the, the owner of the depot to let me cut the bushes down and back a semi in there, I never could get permission to cut the bushes. I would have made it a lot easier. But it's his property, and, you know, he can do whatever he wants with it. I can't be mad about that. Uh So it made it a lot more complicated. We ended up trucking in a giant forklift, basically, from another state and lifting it up and moving it. But moving it in one piece would have been ideal, but the price tag on that that would have been between $30,000 to $40,000. Oh, my gosh. Because it's 57 feet long. Yeah. It's And so when you have a drop-deck semi-trailer, which you have to have or else it'll be too tall to clear the power lines... You have about 30 feet of usable space on a standard drop-deck semi-trailer. Okay. This thing is twice that. So you have to have a semi-trailer twice the average length of a semi-trailer. So how, how did you get into two pieces then? Uh, well, we cut it. Just cut it? <laughs> okay. We did. And it was not an ideal solution. I tried for months to not cut it in half. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I couldn't. And I, I raised about $9,000 in donations from... 80 different people. Okay. So... Did you do like a GoFundMe? That was great. Thing? Yeah, and then yeah, I did. I had a GoFundMe, and then I put yeah. in about 12000 of my own money. So our budget ended up being about 21000 but that was a little less than half of, or almost half of what we would have needed. Yeah. And, you know, time was running out, like I said, and he'd given me three weeks to move it, and we're like at four months. And so... We ended up cutting it in half because then each half would fit on a standard size and then your forklift could be half the lifting capacity and your crane on the other end when uh-huh. we unloaded in Bloomington could be half the lifting capacity and it, it made it where it was affordable. Now, the train was originally all wood and in 1930, they had put steel plates on the side of it. So we were, you could remove the fasteners and pull the steel plates away from where you were going to cut it and not damage the steel plates. The wood underneath was already pretty much rotted, so I didn't feel bad about cutting the wood. The only permanent scars are there was two steel beams that ran the entire length of the train uh-huh. under the floorboards. They were 17 and a half inches tall. So there's these 57 foot long steel beams under the floor and you know, they'd been there for 111 years untouched and then we had to cut them in half cut to move half, it. But, yeah. you know, we can put patch plates on it and it'll be, you know, the structural integrity will be what it was before and they'll be under the floorboards. And so yeah. the analogy I've used was I would rather have a scar on my chest from open heart surgery than to be dead. Be and that, dead. and yeah. that was the story with the train. Yeah. It also makes yeah. it easier if they ever need to move it, you know, the next owner 30 years from now needs to move it. Mm-hmm. Same thing. They can unbolt the patch plates, plates okay. and move it in two pieces like we did okay okay um so i want to hear more about the story of how this went but i i'm curious how you developed this passion for this like i can just see in your your eyes your face you're just you love this kind of stuff 
it's kind of an esoteric thing to be into, right? So, like, you just always been a train guy? How'd you get into this? Not necessarily train specifically. Um, I'm a big history person. I'm big into historical preservation. Why that is would be, I guess, more for psychologists and people to, to determine. Sure. I mean... I don't know. I've always been, since I was young, I mean, you know, when I was okay. very young, I wanted to go metal detecting and look for, you know, old items buried under the ground. And just that's all, what I've always been into. Uh-huh. Um, I'm an aircraft mechanic by trade. I've been involved with restoring uh, vintage aircraft, you know, back to the 1930s. Okay. Okay. I've helped friends with vintage cars. I've helped with boats. Uh, this is my first train project. Yeah. Sure. So it's that... Um our history and then especially our mechanical history is of interest to you yeah I love transportation history and this train specifically I mean I want all historic train cars to be preserved but this one because of its connection to this community yeah because you can find pictures of this car running through Bloomington Normal where you know I'm proud to call home that really made it where I I needed to save it yeah (laughs) yeah it is such an interesting piece of history the fact that we diverged from that method of transportation so much, you know, we touched on that earlier, but it's a, it's a part of history that, um, a lot of people don't know. Like I, I don't, I didn't know that, you know, um, I was just in, I was just in St. Louis over, uh, like on the West side of town. I went to a show at the pageant theater. I don't know if you know where that is, but anyway, there's the, the, there was this downtown there and it had, trolley tracks running through the street and it's now it's just kind of like novelty thing right or maybe a touristy thing but that was how people got around back in the day huh right yeah and if you look at some of the pictures of these cars by 1952 shortly before they decided to pull them from service they weren't really maintaining them that well by the 50s the paint was kind of run down and it was not a novelty cool it was just the way people it was the way people got around they were running them hard yeah yeah I've heard auto manufacturers were, and politicians were, uh, not politicians, were, uh, governments and auto manufacturers were pressing against the direction of the trolley cars too, right? Is, is that, that's my understanding of the history of it? Yeah, and I mean, after World War II and, well, I mean, even before World War II, but when cars started to become more affordable and everything, I mean, I can understand the appeal at the time of, you independence know, of it. Yeah, independence, having your own vehicle. I mean, it yeah. was a cool thing, but, you know, like with a lot of public policy and a lot of societal directions, mm-hmm. nobody really considers the long-term effects until they're snuck up on us. So they're there. Yeah. 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 So are there still rails, like, there's still rails underneath the streets in some of the places in town, you're understanding? Yeah, there are, yeah. When they... Um, when they scrape up the asphalt to repave them every few years yeah i've seen pictures online the the, the tracks are still there yeah i find it interesting how many bricks are under our asphalt too you see some of the bigger potholes you can see bricks down in there it's uh yeah that's interesting part of history too so oh cool well yeah just wanted to give that background then so okay so this guy's got this car and one you know get rid of it or it's getting destroyed Mm -hmm. you use your you've already got uh a foot in the door with knowing how to do this with your profession because you you know about forklifts and trains no, and I, stuff. I, and, I, I'm not uh, really. I would say, I mean, I know how to fix airplanes and I could probably fix train cars, but moving large objects was definitely... all that stuff. No, that was... Okay. And there was, no, there was nothing in the phone book for moving a train car, so that was just trial and error. Figure that all over yourself? <laughs> yeah. Were you able to find anyone else, like, online that had done something like this before and get some tips, or are you making this all up yourself? 
Um, there was a handful of people that had moved cars, but theirs were easier to move because this is a particularly long car, 57 feet long. So uh, you've probably seen there's a caboose in front of Joe's Station House mm-hmm. Club here. Yeah. I mean, that caboose in its entirety is shorter than one half of my train car. Okay. So okay, it, it was a particularly large project. Um, and then just the budget thing. I mean, if someone had 40 grand that they wanted to spend to move this, I mean, that was basically 30 grand to move it and then 10 grand for all the extra stuff, which was taking the fence down and putting a new fence up on the property when it was moved and mm-hmm. there was a lot of extra things beyond just moving the car because the, the property owners wanted their fence put back up afterwards and oh, stuff yeah. like that yeah it's their place um so it would have been close to 40 grand to move in one piece if someone had could have done that then it might have been easier than what we did but yeah we did what we had to do well, to get it out it, before so. it was scrapped yeah all right cool so you got it you put it in your backyard it's uh you, you welded it back together or or screwed it back together whatever the so so now you got this car in your backyard so uh, so now now what now what are you doing <laughs> um so my property my my personal home is along older out 66 which i admit i did not know when i bought it i was just looking for a good home for my family <laughs> and uh, bought this home and then looked at it and went, well we're okay we're on old route 66 and i went down to the mclean county museum of history showed them on the map i'm like so this is route 66 right now yeah like, okay so i thought it was always cool i lived on old route 66 i also have a particularly somewhat of a large yard for being in the city of bloomington within city limits i have 1.19 acres in city limits and that's because basically it's an old farmhouse that was built outside of the city of Bloomington and got swallowed up by Bloomington. Sure. And so there's still 1.19 acres of the original farm with the house. And you're on like the south side of town, right? Yeah, if southwest side. Okay, southwest, correct. Yeah. And so when I got this train car, I thought Route 66 train car which is transportation history that was a sleeper car mm-hmm. this would be a great to set up as a bed and breakfast along route 66 um we also talked about making it into a cafe at one point a diner but you know if you set it up as an as like an airbnb that's a little more pa- passive than running a restaurant and also because it was a sleeper car it just makes a lot more sense for it to be an overnight destination. Yeah. You know, if you'd found an old diner car and made that into a restaurant, that would be more in line with the history of the car. Yeah, but. that makes sense. Also, I'd imagine, um, I mean, Airbnb, you got, yeah, like one group there at a time, and then you got, you know, breakfast to provide to them versus cafe. You got to have, like, kitchen staff and facilities and health inspections and all that stuff, Correct. too. So, yes. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me for a lot of perspectives. Right, so that's the the route we're going to go with it. Um, and just like with moving a 57-foot train car that weighs almost 90,000 pounds that I'd never done before, I've never dealt with the city or the municipalities and trying to figure out all the regulations and the zoning mm-hmm. and the, the codes for this. So that's where we're on now. We're still sort of early in the process, but... Uh, basically at this point I'm trying to subdivide my lot into two lots okay. so that you can have two residential structures uh, my understanding of the current Bloomington Code and you may know more about this is that I can't have two residential structures on the same plot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I was trying to see if there was a waiver or an exemption where they would allow me to do that but I I kept running I wasn't able to get answers no one it seemed like there was not really an an- no one had the answer of 
can I get a waiver and exemption to have two residential structures on one plot of land? And I eventually gave up on that route and said, well, I'll just split it into two plots. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's actually something that I would like us to look at. I mentioned this in a GLT interview recently about how it seems like we're in a place now where we need more housing. There's a housing shortage here. There's plenty of people with backyards big enough to build another house in, and uh, that's typically what people have done in these types of situations. It's effectively free for the city because you you know use the existing sewer, existing water, existing trash pickup, like everything's out there already. And so you can put another residence out there as long as all those services are already being provided to that area. Then then picking up another one's really pretty negligible as compared to building a house that's like way outside of the city core where now you got to run new new everything out there, right? <clears throat> You'd think it'd be in the city's financial interest. It is in the city's financial interest to do it this way. Right. Um, plus, if enough people build more residences, you know, if, it, if the density increases, the objection people will say is like, well, then the streets will get degraded or like the sewer lines will be able to take it. Well, that's exactly the point. So then, then instead of building new stuff outside the city, then you actually just build, you improve the stuff that you have currently, and then it's uh, it's better for the people to live there right now too. So no, for sure, infilling is seems like a better yeah way to do it than sprawling out. Sprawling out, out yeah. yeah. So I hope that we can come up with some stuff that makes this kind of thing easier for you. But in the meantime. Um, Splitting into two, it's not like you got a pretty big piece of property, so you can split into two lots. Then, what's involved with that? Um, so yeah, I've, I've signed an agreement with an attorney, uh, you know, a retainer agreement. He's going to sort of, I think, like with a lot of things, I could probably do it without the attorney, but it would take twenty times as long. Um, then I also have to get a surveyor to survey the plot, and then this has to basically be submitted to the city planner, yeah, and for them to approve. Um, so basically what we have to do is go to the city with the plan beforehand to get their sort of, if they say they don't like the idea right off the bat, we're not going to spend the energy or the money yeah. to do it. But if they say, yeah, we would probably be okay with this, then we do the official survey and all the paperwork and then resubmit it and hopefully they approve it. Now, in my case, I was always going to subdivide the plot at some point just because I may want to sell my house, move to a different house, but keep the train car or, you know, sell the train car and keep the house. That's less likely. I probably plan to keep the train car. But um, so subdividing the plot made sense where they don't have to be sold as a pair. But what I wanted to do was to find out if there was an exemption or a waiver to have them both on there and get to restoring the train car and get it get it done so that the 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 corrosion of the car doesn't get any worse and then also get it just open and and then worry about subdividing the plot and what i ran into was and and i don't say i'm not here to to criticize the the bloomington city government or the municipality in any way i know that with the pandemic everyone's operating under unique circumstances but i couldn't find an answer and that's what surprised me i thought it would be i would be able to find someone and say can I get a waiver, can I get an exemption, a variance, whatever you want to call it, to have two residential structures on this one plot, yes or no? And if they said no, then I'll work on sub- subdividing the plot right now. Mm-hmm. And if they said yes, then I would start on restoring the train car 
and then subdivide the property a couple years down the road. And I just couldn't get a yes or a no at all. And that's kind of what surprised me. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you make a good point. Well, I, mean, I think you were gesturing at a good point there that it's not like a about specific people, right? It's not about the city staff or even, in my view, it's not even about the city at all. It's more about like the system we have set up for how, if you're going to make a new house, what's the easier way of doing it? What's the harder way of doing it? You know, if you, if you were a real estate developer who said, hey, I want to go and build 20 of the same houses on a cul-de-sac out east of town, okay, we, you know, we know what's involved with that, but you're off of the standard operating procedures, and so things get a little dicey when it comes to this. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I always like to make it clear it's not about the specific people working in the government, and it's not about the specific people who choose to live in a certain house or, you know, uh, when I, if I'm opposed to sprawl, it's not, I'm not opposed to the people who live in those houses. I used to live in a house like that. Like, if they're houses, they, if they're built, go live in them, right? Like, mm-hmm. It'd be worse if no one was living out there. You have vacant houses, right? So right. it's not about anyone's individual choices. No, it's just about, like, the, the, in my mind, the system and the fact that, the fact that you can't get an answer is really fascinating to me. Well, you would think the answer would be no, but then again, like, you'd also think that someone, whoever was making the rules, could just kind of look at the situation and go, like, okay, yeah, we'll do a public hearing, we'll get some people in, and if everyone, you know, if this body says it's okay, we'll stamp some kind of thing and you can do it, so. Well, yeah, like you're saying, it, it, there's very, very little room, not even just in the bureaucracy or in the, in the municipalities, but even amongst like the banks or the insurance agents yeah. or whatever for a project that doesn't fit the cookie cutter template. Yeah. So I'm interested in that too. So yeah, tell me about, cause I'm assuming you couldn't get like a loan to move this car. <laughs> no. Well to move it, no, to restore it, maybe. Um, cause moving it, there's no collateral. It's just, you're moving it. Yeah. Um, which is why, like I said, you know, I had to raise money and then put in some of my own money mm-hmm. and we got it moved. Uh, as far as getting a loan to, refurbish the car and set it up as a residential structure. I've talked to my banker. He was excited about the project. He had read about it in the Pantograph. So -hmm. he was familiar with the project before I even came in. And he's like, I want to help with this project. I just have to figure out how because it doesn't fit any known category. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, your banker's looking into that then? Right. Well, and to get the, the, the loan, you, of course, have to have an appraiser. Well, that's the next hurdle. Who can appraise a 1911 sleeper car? Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? And then same with yeah. the insurance. And so we'll figure it out. I mean, it, I, I knew taking on the project that there would be these hurdles of this is not a standard, you know, 2,500 square foot house you know in a subdivision on the yeah. east side of bloomington like you know <laughs> yeah yeah oh cool um but i mean you, you need to get you really need to get something moving on this to start getting some income for yourself to further be able to devote into the project right there's only so much of your own money and time you can spend before it's gonna burn you out right right and to subdivide the property, I've never done that before, so I didn't have any sort of estimate if that was going to be $500 or $50,000. Mm-hmm. Um, between the surveyor and the attorney, it's looking like five to 6000 which is a lot, okay. yeah. but yeah. Not, it's not 30000 So sure. that can be done. And then I, uh, next week I have a couple of um, contractors coming out to give preliminary quotes on refurbishing the car. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know what that's going to cost, but I'm basically viewing it as a 500 square foot studio apartment is what okay. it is. Yeah. Um, it's 57 feet long, but the three and a half feet on either end are like platforms, kind of like porches almost. So mm-hmm. the it's 50 feet of usable space. So 500 square foot studio apartment. And so I'm guessing in the neighborhood of 150,000, maybe. It might be less, it might be more. There's really no way to tell yeah. right now until I get some quotes, but that's I've just been using 150,000 as the number in my head okay. until further notice. And so, you know, the plan is to get a, a mortgage on it and it will have its own plot of land. It will be its own 500 square foot studio apartment. It will be a residential structure and just treat it like that. Yeah. So tell me a bit about the inside of it then. You know, I'm visioning a studio apartment. Um, how many people could it sleep? So when it operated as a sleeper car, it actually had nine separate cabins. Now, okay. They would have had been small cabins if you're fitting them into 50 feet, 50 feet long. Yeah. Um, but they were all single beds, and the toilet was in the room kind of next to your head. Um, okay, so there's nine different toilets. In nine there. different toilets. Okay, all right. And so when I got the car moved to Bloomington, I had a, a, a forum, basically. I, I got a conference room from a hotel, and I invited a lot of railroad historians and local Bloomington normal historians, people like Greg Coos and mm-hmm. you know um, Dale Jenkins from the Illinois Terminal, or the Illinois Traction System, sorry, Illinois Traction Society, which is a, a group of people that preserved the history of, of this railroad. And we, we had a few people there, um, Bill Kemp from the McLean County Museum of History. And I explained my idea to him. I was like, I consider myself a purist, but I don't know if restoring this with nine separate cabins yeah. is... Uh, and I should clarify that the interior was gutted a long time ago. So I tell people... The bad news is that the interior was gutted a long time ago, and the good news was that the interior was gutted a long so time ago it looks, because yeah. it allows me the freedom. I could never bring myself to tear out those nine cabins if they still existed, <laughs> but because they're not there, I can sort of play with the layout a little bit. So I want them to be recreated and sort of look like that, but be bigger, have double beds instead of single beds, mm-hmm. have one bathroom for the whole thing instead of a toilet in each room. Yeah. And I basically want to have three cabins with double beds so it can sleep six people, have a sitting area, a kitchenette, and a bathroom, and basically rent it out to one group of people, one yeah. family at a time, and not, I'm not trying to set it up as a hostel. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, these would be all people who were, like, yeah, just, like Airbnb, right? right. You, you'd, you'd rent that to one group of people. Um, right. And of those... That sounds really fun. Of those three cabins, because here's what's interesting... All the receipts for when it was built are still preserved. And so I have all this information. They have the thread count on the sheets. They have (laughs) everything. So when we recreate three cabins, because I said we want to be able to sleep six people, they will be slightly larger to accommodate two double, you know, a double bed instead of a single bed. Yeah. And they won't have the toilet in there. But beyond that, I want to try to recreate what it would look like like. very closely. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. Um, and so then would you connect that up to like a septic tank are you thinking or would you do like Um, like it would fully function in kitchen and and bathroom then yeah it'll be connected to city 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 services yeah okay so it's gonna be a very permanent structure then yeah Um, and uh, is there a shower or you put a shower in yeah it'll have a bathroom with a shower full full bathroom in there okay 
Wow. That's really cool. Um, Although everything in there will try to look, period, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Will you... Uh, Will you put, like, how's the insulation on the inside? Is this something in the summer or the winter is going to be hospitable for people? Um, yeah, I mean. Or more of a seasonal thing? No, no, no. It's going to be it's gonna be year-round. We'll have it insulated and stuff. It has a lot of windows. That's one thing. So I don't know if the heating bill will be a little higher than yeah, a regular 500-square-foot heat, heat and AC in there and everything. Yeah, but, so, man. Yeah. Which it had when it was running. I mean, when you read the description of the car, even when it was built in 1911, it had heating and and a a rudimentary form of air conditioning. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's amazing. The air conditioning unit's still in the car, the original. Is it really? I don't know if I'll be able to restore it with all the Freon laws and, you know, (laughs) stuff. But, yeah, the original air conditioning unit is still in the car. Huh. Yeah. Might be better just to stick a window unit in there, a newer (laughs) one, get that going. But... Wow. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, the way you're painting it, it just seems like such a fascinating thing for the community to have of uh, again, people who are history buffs that you mentioned right along Route 66 coming along, you know, Googling places to stay in Bloomington Normal and seeing that you, there's a restored historical train car, you know, as close to period as you could. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to see that happen. I'm I'm really impressed that you are doing so much to make this happen and putting so much of your time and energy and money into it. Because I, I seem like there's so many people now who are... It's so tempting just to sit and complain about stuff, right? Or just you get on social and just social media and just see all these bad things happening and just sit there and feel bad about the state of the world or have these issues or things that are important to you but like just mainly just complain it's real inspiring to me to see somebody who will say like this is something that's important to me here's this opportunity like i'm gonna go out and do this thing i'm gonna make this happen and who knows how it's gonna turn out right it's uh it's very cool so thank you for doing that (laughs) well and i think part of it is it it's difficult to put yourself out there so this would seem like a non-controversial project restoring a train car but when it came down to the wire and the choices were scrap the car or move it in two pieces. We moved it in two pieces. And in certain corners of the internet, that led to a lot of criticism. About cutting it? About, yeah, about oh, really? moving the car in two pieces. A lot of criticism. But like I had pointed out, I'm like, the car was free to anyone who wanted it. If, if you wanted to move in one piece, I wouldn't have stopped you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you said number, well, you were number 10, right? You said number 11 could go if they wanted to. Yeah, I called so. them up and I said, if there's anyone that's behind me on in the line. And so you, you put yourself out. But I think part of that, though, too, is that the human brain is, is wired to see or to flag negative criticism more than positive. Because when I go back and I read all the social media interaction, it's overwhelmingly positive, but when I'm you remember laying in bed at thing. night, I'm thinking of the comments that were not positive. Yeah. And then I think, no, no, I can't do that. There's been over 100 people that have donated or been involved in this project. There have been... Yeah. It's, it's gotten great reception. The, the comments have been overwhelmingly positive. I can't let just a few comments, you know, drag me down. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That's like... That's been my theme for the last half of 2021 and, and hopefully for all of 2022 I've talked about it on the podcast before but being inspired towards a positive vision instead of away from a negative vision because I realize my, my 
all 37 years of my life, I've just been mostly motivated by avoiding negative things. Is I just don't want the bad thing to happen. Right? When, when push comes to shove, I, I do it. I like to think that I've been successful at a lot of things, but I think I've been successful at a lot of things because I've been running from something I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. And I want to change that because I, I, I can see it's not sustainable. Like as I'm getting close to 40 now, and I can see it, like I'm slowing down, and that same like the bear chasing me is starting to get like it's <laughs> starting to get the stress is adding up, right? And I want to move it towards like what's that what's that thing I can envision in the future that I can try to make happen? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. exactly what you just said. You can't you can't let yourself lay in bed and think about the five people who said something bad about you. You got to think about like what what is in my what's in my head of what could be with this? What's because you're leaving a legacy with this, right? I mean, this this train car could be a legacy. This would have been gone now if not for you, right? So, well, me and the hundred other people that have oh, and all the, yeah, been involved with point, the project. Good point. Yeah. All the other people that are helping you yeah, out. I've right? been yeah. for the conductor, yeah. you know, of the train. But yeah. um, yeah, yeah, without without, if it was literally just me, it would not have happened. So, yeah. Yeah. and I want to give a quick shout out to Gary Forshaw. Gary, um, in nineteen sixty six. The car had been abandoned for 10 years already. 1956 was the last time it was really used for anything, and it was sitting at uh, the train depot in Edwardsville, Illinois. Uh, Gary Forshaw and his stepbrother Fred and uh, one of their friends were employees of the railroad, and they'd seen this car just sitting there starting to rot away, and they went to their supervisor and said, hey, can we, uh, can we buy that train car? And they, you know, laughed at him, said, get back to work. What are you talking about? So they drove to the president of the railroad's house and got there at 8 o'clock at night, knocked on his door, and he invited him in. And they said, we want to buy this train car because it was a wood sleeper car. Even even by 1966, you know, it was mm-hmm. historic in its own right. He's like, okay, I'll sell it to you for a dollar. Okay. And they said, well, we don't have a place to put it. Can we rent the spot that it's already sitting? And he yeah. said, I'll, I'll rent you track space for a dollar a year for the next five years. Okay. And so they poured all what little money they had into redoing the roof and painting it, and, and they saved the car in 1966. Okay. And okay. ended up, um, after then, they had it for like seven years, and it went through a few different owners, and that brings us to today. Well, Gary and his stepbrother, Fred, are, are both still alive. And Gary donated more money to this project than any other single individual. But more than that, because he and I are in some of the same Facebook groups, he saw the negative criticism Mm -hmm. that I had received, and he he wrote me handwritten letters telling me, you know, ignore the criticism, just focus on your dream. Yeah. And honestly, the emotional support that I got from the, the original, the first private owner of the train, his emotional support was more important than the money and the money was very important yeah and so i i'm a strong person i like to think i would have persevered with the project in in the face of the criticism Uh but with without gary's emotional support i may i may not have continued i don't know yeah but shout out to gary yeah definitely that's a great story man um yeah i i heard it do you know radio lab on npr you ever heard of that before They did a thing once about how people experience history in objects mm-hmm. and talked about this. There's some people who have a, like a real sense of the history of the object. Like that's a very visceral sensation for them. Like you know, this, this flag was on the moon. Like that's, that's like a very, like you almost see it. Like you see a color. 
Uh, and when I heard that, I realized that whatever spectrum that is, I'm basically blind to it. I don't, I don't see the history of objects at all. Like I, I went to, uh, I, you know, I went to Springfield. I saw the Lincoln Museum. I really, I really liked it. And someone was like, "Oh, can you believe that was like Lincoln's real hat?" I was like, "Well, it could be a replica to me. It, it, that that actual physical object doesn't like emanate history to me." Mm-hmm. And it was at first, it was sort of like I thought someone was kind of pulling my leg. But as I met more and more people, which I I, I feel like you are that person. Yeah, I I've become to be more appreciative that there are people in the world who have that like visceral sense of the history of an object because you're the people that are preserving the history for us, right? Like, I, I feel like a blind man and you're describing color to me <laughs> and I love seeing it because it, it comes out in the passion for what you're doing. So, um, so thank you and, and all the other people that, that contributed and uh, you mentioned Greg Coos. I think he's one of those people too in the community. He's always out there on the front lines fighting for us to keep our history and things like that and um, it's, a, it's an important part of our, our community here. One, yeah, I would say I am one of those those people that connects through history with with objects. And one sort of, I guess, eye-opening moment I had because the train car was built in 1911. So when I think about it, I mostly think of Victorian-style clothing and you know people riding it with top hats and sure. monocles and sure. stopwatches and that sort of thing. But obviously, the, the the history of the car went up into the 50s when they quit running it. Mm-hmm. it in 1942, it was converted from a sleeper car into standard seating to transport troops. Uh, and take them to whatever base they were going to train at. And after I'd got the car moved and, and I was looking at it, you know, in my yard, and I was looking at the win- the windows, and it, it just hit me, like, just out of nowhere, just kind of hit me. I'm like, for many families, the last time they saw their loved one alive oh, was man. waving out the window, this window of the train. And that just sort of that visceral connection with that yeah. was sort of a moment. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, um... Well, unless there's a, I'll probably edit this part. <laughs> Had a brain fart. Um, well, this is a very cool project. If anyone wants to learn more about it or figure out how they can support you or, or do anything um, to help out, or what, what would be a good place to go? Um, if you're on Facebook, the, there's a page for the, the train project called Sleeping Car Illinois because Illinois was the name of the sleeping car. Um, you can also email me at save the train at outlook.com. Those are two ways you can get a hold of me. Okay. Well, I uh, wish you all the luck with this, and I'll, uh, like I mentioned, with planning stuff, I'll try to see what we can do to make not this specific project, but just projects like this easier for our community because. I think we see this as the kind of thing that we need, in, in my view. Right. What if, there's an acronym for that, right? ABU or auxiliary? Or Acce- accessory dwelling unit. ADU. Yeah. ADU. Accessory yeah. dre- dwelling yeah. unit. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I've, I've, the thing I, I always talk about is in my is in my backyard, there could be a big... It's big enough that I could put a nice little house for my mother to live in if my dad passes away. My dad's older than my mom. He's almost 80 now. I keep thinking, like, how nice that would be for her to be close to us. She could help out with my kids. Like, it just seems like everyone wins in a situation, and we need to be able to figure out something like that. Right, and there's yeah. many, many cities that already allow this. We're not reinventing the wheel here. There's no. already a temp- template to follow. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's cities that have bed and breakfast like what you're trying to build up to. So, we should be able to figure it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, right. uh, I support you on this this uh, <laughs> this quest. See how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just one. I mean, we're just two guys here talking. Though it's the whole community uh, that we're that we're talking about affecting, and so it'll be really important to hear from a lot of different people. And there's a lot of people who've thought about housing and zoning and planning and city development a lot more than than you and I have. So it could well, be a good conversation for the community. And particularly with uh, Rivian, you know, hiring thousands of people in the community, which is a great mm-hmm. thing, but that's created mm-hmm. sort of a housing shortage. And to be able to have accessory dwelling units and to infill some land would be really a good option if we could, if you could get it passed. And 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 I I love that Rivian's here. I don't I think that the the minor headache of the housing shortage at yeah. the moment is is worth them being here. And and you know, referencing the train project, I think it's just cool that I have this train car built in 1911 that Especially used to be an, an electric train car and now you have Rivian building electric vehicles here it's a great yeah, you know great connection balance so uh, but it has created like I said sort of a housing shortage and I think that accessory dwelling units would be a yeah. great option every uh, every challenge is an opportunity right think exactly. it's an opportunity for us so. alright well that was your first podcast how'd it go well, good. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you.